like to move us through a few movements of prayer together this morning as we continue to worship. Two from Mark 12. In prayer, we're going to consider the greatest commandment of Christ. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Take a moment in prayer to reflect on this commandment of Christ, the greatest commandment that we are to love God in every area of our life, heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is primary. And we are, we are told to imitate Christ, and Christ did this perfectly. And we're also empowered by the Holy Spirit to fulfill this commandment. And so let's pray into this in every area of our life that we would love God with all of our heart, all of our, all of our soul, all of our mind, with all of our strength. This is your time. Father, from the seat of everything that we are and everything that we do, from which everything flows from our very hearts, we pray that we would be a people that love you with all of our hearts. We know that we want want to imitate Christ in this way. We also know that your spirit is within every believer. Every Christian has your spirit. So I pray that you would cultivate a love for us, a heartfelt love for God. All of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. For the things that we have loved, even this week, or in general in our lives, our regular, our regular loves um, that have risen above love for God, I pray that we would lay those down and take on the mantle of loving you with everything we are. We want everything in our lives to flow from this place. So God, make it so in us. We also recognize in a time of such uh, turmoil in society, And for many, many folks in their own homes, difficulty, just in the air, we need your Holy Spirit to help us to do these things more than ever, God. Jesus says the second command is is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater command than these. Join me in prayer as we pray into this commandment of Christ. Father, everyone has someone different in their mind when they think about their neighbor. Who is my neighbor was a question that you were asked and uh, you told the story of the Good Samaritan, someone who was totally different um, culturally, socioeconomically, um, racially, in every way, in every, every marker, someone who was totally different from us is our neighbor. And I pray that we would Learn to love our neighbors as ourselves, God, those that are different from us. For we know that Christ says, what credit is is it to you if you love those who love you? Doesn't even people that don't know God do that? I pray that by your spirit, by your grace and help, we would imitate Christ by loving those who are different from us. Not because we are like them. Not, Not any part of us in that equation. But because you love them and value them, God. 
I believe that we all want to, we who follow Christ here, want to fulfill the law and the prophets. We want to please you. We want to glorify Christ with our lives. So help us, God, to love you and to love our neighbor as ourselves so that we can fulfill the law and the prophets in their small details, God. That's our desire this morning in worship. The final movement of prayers from Matthew 5. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be, for, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So in this section, we are called to love our enemies, people that maybe are unrighteous, people that have wronged us. So we have personal enemies. We have enemies in our own family systems that um, give us a lot of grief. We have uh, political enemies in this world that we However we orient ourselves, we have enemies. This world is an enemy-making machine, someone in our denomination has said recently. It's an enemy-making machine, and Jesus says we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So whoever comes to mind when you say the word enemy, I, I, I advise you to pray the blessings on that person or people that you would pray on your own life or on someone that is very much like you, that you love very much. Pray the same blessings on your enemy and bless your enemy this morning so that we might be daughters and sons of our Father in heaven who causes son, the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is your time to pray and consider who is my enemy and then to pray blessings on your enemy this morning. Once again, Father, we desire to be imitators of Christ, those of us who follow Jesus, and so we pray that you would Help us to love our enemies and pray blessings, pray for those who persecute us, whether they be our spouse, our children, our families, um, the people in our, in our workplace or in our neighborhood or just in our world that we live in. Lord, there are layers and layers of people that, um, that this could represent. We pray that we would be imitators of Christ, who when he was dying on the cross, prayed for the soldiers who crucified him, who are pounding the very nails into his hands. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. We recognize that a lot of people don't even know their right hand from their left hand when it comes to righteousness. And we who have special knowledge about you, God, I pray that we would have mercy on those that do not, on those that are missing the point, missing the boat. And we pray blessings on these people, God. We pray that as we pray blessings, as we continue to pray blessings on those who would be our quote-unquote enemies, that we would become people who love the way that you love. Um, you who causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust in your mercy. And all these things, even these uncomfortable areas, I mean, this is uncomfortable for me to pray, God, to pray and consider these things. Every layer of these prayers is uncomfortable for me to pray, to love you with everything that I am, knowing that that is not true currently, to, to pray that I'd love my neighbor as myself, which is certainly not true perfectly, and to love my enemies. 
and pray for those who persecute me. These are difficult, challenging things. I pray that as we imitate you, as we pray these prayers, your Holy Spirit would make them so in our lives, that we would be salt and light, that we would come to mirror and reflect the God who we worship. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today, I'm excited to be starting in a, 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 new, a new short series through the book of Jonah, which I've been actually thinking about this for, for a while, probably over a year, thinking about the possibility of going through the book of Jonah. And it has not disappointed. It's been one of the most interesting studies I think I've ever done in the Bible, just very interesting. It's also a very funny book, which I really like because I like funny books. And uh, there's, there's some funny stuff in there. And also, it's, it's a very convicting book, incredibly convicting book, both for the time it was written and also we will see to us. So I'm really excited about this. I, I actually prayed with uh, Greg last week as we kind of launched the series. I prayed with the prayer team on Wednesday. We bathed this in prayer. Uh, but I'd like to pray with you also that God would use this series in our lives. Uh, we believe the prayer is our primary work, so let's lift this up in prayer and ask God to make this effective in our lives. Jesus, we remember Paul's words, especially I remember. Our, he said his, his preaching was not with smooth and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of power. And so I recognize that even the best preacher who probably ever lived, best mind who ever thought in Christianity, besides Jesus, said his preaching was ineffective apart from your empowerment. So, Father, we pray that you'd bathe your word in conviction and power that it would be able to divide thoughts and intentions, bone and marrow, and do all the things your word does, convicting us and leading us into a recognition of the character of God, into a decloaking, taking the veil away so we can see Jesus in this story, and also helping us to confront our nature, which is often the opposite of what you would have it be for us, um, that we would change and become like you and imitators of Christ through this study. So we lift it up in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, there's so much in the book of Jonah that it seems almost impossible to contain all the interesting things that I've been learning into these sermons, but hopefully over the next four to five weeks we'll be able to do this and then we're going to be into the season of Advent, which is incredible. And we're actually having Mark Ikos, our missionary from Bosnia, speaking to us on December 6th. He'll be joining us. Really cool. Uh, they're, they're in town, and they're going to be sharing with us during Advent. So I'm looking forward to that. But I've titled this sermon, Jonah, God's Reluctant Messenger. And this was a title I was very happy with and proud of until I realized that tons of people have named the sermon series this. I Googled it. I'm like, oh, look, everyone else did this too. But it's not the title that's important, of course, but the message of the book of Jonah. And the purpose of the book of Jonah, as we will see, like every other book in the Bible, is to reveal God's character, who God is, to see Jesus in the book, and to know how God moves and works in the world, his posture towards the world, and hopefully to become imitators of God through seeing this. And I think in this book, we get to see a lot of who God is and are challenged by what he's calling us to do and how he's calling us to be. Very much like Mark 12 and Matthew 5, God's posture is different from us. We want to be like our Father, not like 
any old person that doesn't know God, right? So Jonah, God's reluctant messenger, and he is comedically reluctant. I hope you find it funny as well. I don't know. I'm kind of trying to raise your expectations of the book of Jonah because I, I, I suspect they are extraordinarily low because we've seen all kinds of weird stuff about Jonah. When I talk about Jonah, even I have a cart like a 1990s cartoon of Jonah in my head, much like this picture. And whenever you think of Jonah, what do you think of? You just think of the fish. You think of the giant fish. You think of the man in the fish. You think of a very simple Bible lesson that a child can understand. It's, it's, not, it's like a man and a giant fish, kind of like James and the giant peach. It's like, yeah, it's like this whatever. Kind of strange little story. And the moral of the story in the kid's version is, do not run from God or you will be eaten by a fish. And then he will spit you out and uh, then you will obey God. So it's kind of like a retributive justice message. Like, if you don't obey God, you get eaten by a fish. Kids, I'm, I promise that's probably not true for you. So this is sort of the cartoonish, and this is indeed a cartoon picture and simple message. That's a good lesson. I think running from God is a, is a theme from Jonah. It's a dangerous thing that we all do, subtly and overtly. Jonah's very overt with his running. But I think the deeper messages of Jonah would actually be difficult for a child to comprehend. Because truly, the book of Jonah, it's four chapters, and only a few verses are about the fish. The rest of it's about other stuff. And the fish is just kind of ancillary to that story of, of Jonah. Another issue that always seems, up to, seems to bump up against us when we read the book of Jonah is that people are obsessed with the science of Jonah. How did a man survive three days inside of a fish? Without oxygen, presumably, or without much oxygen, and without much provisions. And this is something that people, this is something that adults really get sidelined by and obsessed with, and then they also miss the message of Jonah because they're focused on the fish as well. For me personally, I absolutely believe as a Christian that it's possible for God to do a miracle to keep someone alive inside of a fish for three days. Sure, why not? We believe Jesus rose from the dead. We believe in all the miracles of Christ. You know, there's no part of me that doubts God could do that. God can do anything, for sure. But we get so kind of sidelined by, by this idea of, Jesus, of the science of how Jonah survived inside of a fish that we sometimes miss the point of the story once again and get sidelined by the scientific debate. And I think this is even one of those classic debates that Christians and non-Christians like fight about. Um, and it becomes kind of like a marker of how biblical are you? How faithful are you? If you're a faithful Christian, you believe that Jonah was swallowed by a literal fish. And if you're like a theological liberal or something, then you believe that he wasn't because you don't believe in miracles. But that's not actually really fair when we come to this book because as we will see, I will say and as I will see, I do believe that Jonah is a of historical fictitious parable based on uh, a real person who really lived. But it's a story that is, um, if you will, it is a, what do they call it on Saturday Night Live? It's a parody of a story to teach a lesson. But whether or not you believe it's, a, it's an actual literal historical story, or whether you, like I do, you believe that it is a historical historical fictitious narrative to teach a story, a parable, if you will, it doesn't really matter because the message is the same. 
And it doesn't make you less of a Bible-believing Christian to believe one way or the other. Because uh, as I said, we believe in the bodily resurrection of Christ. Of course we believe that man can survive in a fish. It's absolutely possible. But there are many interesting markers in the story that make it, make it rather clear that it is a story that's being told in a certain way to, to cast a certain message to its people. But Jonah, as for who he was, he was a real person. Jonah was a real person. From 2 Kings 14, 23 to 25, Jonah was the prophet during the reign of a e- very evil king named Jeroboam II. If you didn't like Jeroboam I, you'll hate the sequel. He was a very wicked king, but just like any other person that's in power, God, uh, God did accomplish his will through this wicked king and through Jonah the prophet. So, yeah, Jonah was a real person. Uh, Jesus actually called back to the story of Jonah when he was illustrating his own death and resurrection. He says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in the tomb for three days and rise again. But again, because of the way Jonah is written, because of the details left in, the details left out, because of the style of the book and the humor in the book that we will see, it, become, it became very clear to me that though this parable is based on real, a real person and even referred to by Jesus, that Jonah was a satirical story to convict God's people about their hearts being in the wrong place. And I believe it serves the same purpose for us. This type of parable is, if you want to look at a different type of literature, a different um, place in the Bible that's very similar to this parable. You can look at Luke 16. So this is a parable that Jesus told called The Rich Man and Lazarus. Jesus says, Now there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from here to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So in this this parable, the rich man goes to Hades. He can see into the realm of, of heaven, if you will, where Abraham has been gathered, and with Lazarus by his side. And the rich man begs Abraham to let him come back to life to warn his five family members who are still living in a state of injustice, hoarding their wealth and ignoring the plight of the poor. And Abraham replied that if the rich man's family will not listen to Moses or the prophets in the Bible, then they are so hard-hearted that they won't listen to 
their dead relative coming back to life, even. And that's a very harsh and disturbing teaching, in my opinion. Uh, it's, it's a historical, fictitious, fictitious parable meant to convict its hearers to their core, which it does very well. And it accomplishes that goal extremely well, even using familiar characters like Abraham, uh, like Lazarus. It's a, it's a parable Jesus spins to convict his audience. And I think that's exactly how Jonah, it, what Jonah is meant to do. It takes this historical figure of Jonah, the son of Amittai, who actually lived and served as a prophet under the evil King Jeroboam II, and he places Jonah into the story uh, that is meant to convict the reader of their evil thoughts and actions in the world so that they will repent and turn to God to find his superabundant grace. So as the Holy Spirit confronts us as we read this book, I'm praying that God will do this same convicting work effectively in our lives as well. That it will cut to our heart like it did for its original readers. So just to be clear, just for those that are troubled by these things, though we affirm and believe in all of the miracles of the Bible, such as healings, the resurrection of Christ after three days in the grave, creation of the world, I'm classifying Jonah as historical fiction satire, a prophetic parable for the audience it was written for and for us, which we will see as we go into the book. So this introduction in mind, I want to read the first part of Jonah. Jonah 1, 1 to 10. Jonah, remember, is called a minor prophet. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. For those who have read the Bible quite a bit in their lives, you know this is how all the prophets start. This is how the other prophets start as well. It starts with saying the word of the Lord came to the prophet. And then it goes on to share oracles, to share the word from the Lord that came to the prophet for the people of God in general. So if you look at the other Old Testament prophets, minor and major, the word of the Lord comes to the prophet, and then he shares the word with its intended audience. This one's going to go a different direction, which makes it hard to classify in the same way. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own god. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us, so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, What have you done? And parenthetically it says, They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so at the beginning of his trip. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, What should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. 
I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is the first part of the book of Jonah. So I set this up as being a satire. In a satire, no stereotyped character behaves as you'd expect them to behave. The good guy is the bad guy. The bad guy is the good guys. The good guy disobeys God and runs away. The bad guys actually fear the Lord and the God of Jonah and make sacrifices to him by the time they throw him into the water. This is a very unusual story. We have God's prophet, Jonah, and unlike every other prophet in the Bible where it says the word of the Lord came to, came to this prophet and then he shared the word of God with his people and they shared the oracles of God, this is a word of the Lord coming to Jonah and then we get to read about the life of the prophet and what actually happened, which becomes for us the word of God for us. So the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it because of its wickedness has come up before me and unlike what you'd expect a prophet to do, Jonah hightails it in the opposite direction from where God told him to go. Instead, Jonah goes as west as he can go by a boat. And he's, he says he's sailing for Tarshish, which is the farthest west that anyone knew in the known world at that time. So God says, go by land to Assyria, to Nineveh, the capital city, the great city, and preach against them for me. Jonah goes Instead of east, he goes west by the sea in a boat as far as you can possibly go to Tarshish. Not only does Jonah go into the boat, you'll see how, how the, the depth of the satire here of the prophet of God, the man of God. Not only does he go into by a boat in the wrong direction as far as he can possibly go, thinking that he can run from God or hide from God, but he goes down into the deepest part of the boat, it says. So he's in the deepest part of the boat, as far away from the destination God told him to go to as possible. And then, not only does he sink down into the boat and sink away from his mission and sink over the sea, instead of going by land to Nineveh, his consciousness also sinks into sleep. So he is as low as you can go. He is as far from God's mission and plan as is humanly possible to go. This brings us to a recurring theme in this carefully crafted story about Jonah. As Jonah disobeys God and refuses God's call, he goes down, 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 down. And when he obeys God, he goes up. Away to Tarshish, away on a boat, deep into the lowest part of the boat. And finally, this kind of makes me laugh, he, he sinks into sleep. This down language is the biblical writer's way of assigning words to Jonah's increasing disobedience. You know, Jonah is sort of a ridiculous figure, a prophet who's told to do something and then does the opposite, but as fast as he can go in the wrong direction uh, from what God has told him to do. Not only is he not preaching, he's going the other way. And as we're going to see in next week's passage, he, he finds hiding from God is not quite possible. 
So that's one ridiculous part of the story. The prophet who does the opposite of what God wants and sinks into sleep. And then over and against Jonah in this story, and ironically and comically, we have these sailors who are not believers in Jonah's God. And these are the people that act righteously in the story so far. These people at first are crying out to their gods, and then they, they cast lots, which is an old-fashioned way of figuring something out. And uh, they figured that it had to do with Jonah. And when they found out that Jonah was, they remember Jonah said he was running from God, apparently. Uh, these people ask Jonah what they should do. And Jonah says, you should take me and throw me into the sea, and then the storm will die down and you guys are going to be saved. But these righteous, righteous uh, pagans, people that don't know God at all, they feared God so much that they refused to take his advice even to the destruction of all of their cargo and also their ship. They started trying to get to shore as fast as they could, which is a very dangerous thing to do in, in the middle of a storm. They pretty much did everything they could before they would throw John into the ocean because they valued his life enough to, even though he's the reason for their calamity, they valued his life. Finally, they, do, they have a prayer session to Yahweh, to Jonah, Jonah's God, not to their many gods. But they have a prayer session. They say, please, Lord, in verse 14, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. This is, the, this is a pretty righteous prayer. And then they throw him into the sea. And then as if that wasn't a, a clear enough separation between the, the, the man of God and those who don't know God at all, after they're done doing that, they offer a sacrifice to Jonah's Lord and make vows to him. So here we see a lot of people not behaving as we would expect them to behave. We see complete reversals of what you would expect. A prophet going the wrong way in the wrong vehicle to avoid doing the very simple thing God called him to do. And people that don't know God valuing life worshiping and praying to God for help, Jonah's God, once they discover it, and then offering sacrifices to his God. Pretty much the opposite of what you expect. And this leaves us with, with why. The why question. Why is this happening? Why is Jonah, this prophet, so against the mission that God is calling him to? And the answer that we're going to see in the next chapter, or in chapter 4, is not because he was scared to go to Nineveh, but because he didn't want to warn the Ninevites because he worried they might repent and God might forgive them. Quite a story. The historical Jonah from 2 Kings 14 was a, was a fiercely nationalistic prophet who was working with a fiercely, fiercely nationalistic king, Jeroboam II, who God used to take back the border cities of Israel. Jonah prophesied, if you look in that passage in 2 Kings, that God would help them bring back these territories that had been taken from them by their enemies. Very much a nationalistic type of figure. To give you an idea of how evil Jeroboam II was, when they got those cities, one of them was Dan, when, he, when they got these two cities, he set up temples in them and put golden calves in the worship area. So not a great king. This picture of who Jonah is that they would have had in mind when they first started re reading this story about Jonah, a fiercely nationalistic dude. A guy, and this fiercely nationalistic guy 
is told to preach God's judgment on a city and doesn't want to do it. And we'll see why in chapter 4. It says, when, God, when the people of, of Nineveh, Nineveh repent after Jonah's, Jonah's message, spoiler alert, you knew this was coming. When the people repent, Jonah becomes angry with God and says, to, says this about Jonah. To Jonah, this seemed very wrong that these people had repented. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah didn't want to do this mission, not because he was scared of going to Nineveh, which is a terrifying place, but because he didn't want even the chance, even though he was preaching against them, he didn't want even the chance for these people to repent and receive forgiveness from God. And he had good reason not to want them to receive forgiveness from God. The, the Ninevites, this group of Assyrians, were the most brutal, horrific milita military people in the world, and they are single-handedly responsible for destroying multiple tribes of Israel. Like 10 of the 12 tribes destroyed, wiped out by the Assyrians. They were brutal enemies to God's people, historically. When they won military victories, they tortured family members in front of other family members in horrific ways, unjust ways. And they would make a mockery of their enemies, not just defeat them, but make a mockery of them and grind them into the dust. And the way we know this is because there are actually reliefs, I saw in my, in my study Bible and other places, of of what the Assyrians did to the people they captured that are preserved for us in ancient sarcophaguses and ancient pieces of pottery. And what, what you see in those things is, is as horrific as anything in any horror movie that's popular in our world today. Shocking and disquieting. And I'm not going to mention the things I know specifically because we have mixed company here, but disgusting. There's a reason Jonah didn't want to speak to these people. And it wasn't because he was afraid of bad things happening to him. His hatred of them was so strong that um, he didn't, he, it appears that he doesn't even care if he lives or dies as long as these horrible enemies don't get a chance to repent. His heart is in quite an interesting place for a prophet of God. And I think somewhere in this story, this is something that's going to hit us right between the eyes. It's going to hit us right where it hurts because this world we live in is such an enemy-making machine. And we begin to not only disagree with our enemies, but we, get, we begin to hate them in our hearts, to label them, to dismiss them. And, and God's challenge to us, as it was to Jonah, is, will you preach to these people? Will you love these people? Will you value the lives of these people? Because I do. Because the one who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, was the one who forgave those who were nailing him to the cross. So, the, so this story of Jonah, it's going to hit us right where it hurts in our hearts. It's going to challenge, you know, all, all the different identities that we hold. You notice the questions that the sailors asked Jonah in the first chapter. Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? For what people are you? 
Jonah said, I'm a Hebrew, first and foremost. And then I worship the Lord. His identity was so rooted in his nationality uh, that it came before everything else. I think one of the things Jonah is going to challenge us to do is to recognize how God values people in the world that really don't deserve it. And then it's going to cause us to look inside and realize that we are those people as well. And through this, I think God is going to make us a more loving, more kind, more gracious people who, like God, cause the sun to rise on the just and the unjust, to love as God loves. That's my prayer with this series. We're going to be going through it week by week and seeing Jonah's journey. And, and in, in seeing that journey, we're going to see a mirror of who we are every week. It's going to be something else. But I'm looking forward to seeing, to seeing where Jonah takes us. One of the greatly encouraging things about this book is that, and for any of you that, that lack hope, you know, here's an extreme character of a story, a man who's told to do one thing by God, is as a prophet, and then he hides from God, not only hides from God, but he boards a ship, goes the opposite direction to the farthest part of the earth, climbs deep, deep, deep down into the deepest part of the ship and falls asleep. To that person, God's grace and mercy is revealed. You know, so as, as far as we run from God, as far as we get carried away uh, in our own lives into, into whatever the opposite of love is, whatever the opposite of obedience to God is, there's no way to get away from the grace of God. And as we'll see, it goes deeper and deeper as Jonah goes deeper, deeper into the ocean. We'll see that next week. So I'd like to invite Julie to come up and we're going to sing a song, Bless the Lord, O My Soul. Father God, we, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the, for the way it's going to speak to us and instruct us. And I pray that through this book, we would come to love you and love our, love our neighbor, to love our enemy, to value life, the way that you value it. We bless your name this morning, God. We recognize that all of us have been like Jonah at one point or another in our lives. We've all gone the wrong direction at full speed and believed we were, we were uh, without hope. We thank you that your grace reached us and reaches us into the deepest, darkest parts. We worship your name this morning, God, for being a God who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, who does not treat us as our sins deserve, who does not harbor anger forever against us, who has loved us, even in all of our deepest, deepest, darkest places. Father God, we, we praise you. As those unbelieving sailors said, you do as you please. You can do anything. You're God of miracles. You're God of grace. I pray that we would find you this week, God, that we would seek you with all of our hearts and find you this week. I pray that you'd bless your people as we go forward to love Jesus, to love God, to love our neighbor, to love our enemies. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dispersed. Go be the church of Christ.